Welcome back, U.S. History fans, to part two of the 1920s. A whole bunch is going on in the 1920s. This is the Roaring Twenties, after all. There's a lot going on. Maybe I should put, like, a lion sound in the background. Get it? Roaring? Yeah, my jokes aren't even funny in audio format. Okay, anyhow, let's get going. So, women wanting the right to vote in the 1920s. Now, this all happens with the 19th Amendment, so keep that one in the back of your head, but... We're going to be talking about some of the history of it and whatnot. Uh, this is also known as women's suffrage, or women wanting the right to vote. And it kind of is seen as starting back in 1848, at least United States-wise, in Seneca Falls Convention in New York. And there, women demanded the right to vote at the convention. Uh, didn't really kind of go too well for them. Um, so, obviously, it's not going to happen until the 1920s unit here that we're finally going to get women the right to vote. And a lot of this had to do with anti-suffragists. And the weird thing is about this is it's both men and women of all ages and all economic backgrounds that didn't want women to have the right to vote. So here are some of the reasons, at least how people justified it. Um, they felt that women would become too manly if they decided to vote. Oh, ha, ha, you know, I, I don't know. That's my best being manly. Um, women could be easily manipulated by politicians because they're fragile brains. Oh, no. That's me being very facetious, by the way. Politics would distract them from their duties at home. Oh, no. That was me being facetious again. And finally, well, it's like 1920. If they wanted to vote, they would have already wanted to vote by now. Maybe they just don't want to. All right. So those are kind of the top reasons. Well, we got to see some, you know, suffragists come along. So Susan B. Anthony became a big proponent for women's rights, and she led a group to Rochester, New York, where she insisted on voting, and they insisted on arresting her. And so after that, they figured there was probably two paths that they could take to get women the right to vote. One, a constitutional amendment, which we eventually get, where basically if we change this and then it goes all over the United States, women can vote. Or we could do it on a state-by-state -state basis. So if this state lets women vote and this state does, you can just go to those states. And if we get enough of them, eventually it'll work out in our favor. So Susan B. Anthony and some others formed the National American Women, Women's Suffrage Association, NASA, N-A-W-S-A. And basically, up until 1910, they didn't really have a ton of progress being made. But then we started to be, you know, they started becoming, um, the times were changing. Let's put it that way. So um, an offshoot of NASA, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns took over a NASA committee that was working on a basically a, a giant federal suffrage amendment. And they organized a group of around 5,000 women, and they marched on Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. And so we're seeing a lot getting done here and, you know, trying to motivate people to make changes in a positive way. All right. And later on, this Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, they transformed this committee into the CU or Congressional Union. Well, the CU became a little too radical for NASA. So NASA's like, sorry, Alice Paul, Lucy Burns, you guys are out of here. So the CU continued to go on, and they continued to demonstrate in their own way. And one of the things they did was they made a life-size replica of Woodrow Wilson and set it on fire. Now, just to give you a little idea, if you were to do that today and make a giant replica of the president and set it on fire, how would that go for you? I bet you'd make the news. 
Um, please don't do that. All right, so anyhow, also just to give you a little idea of why things are changing now versus earlier, with World War One, women did their patriotic duty. If you remember in <laughs> duty, uh, anyhow, sorry. If you remember from World War One, women participated. Now, granted, they weren't part of the Selective Service and Training Act or anything like that, but they did participate. Women did whatever they could to help out. So the argument of the separation or separate sphere of women and men were forgotten during wartime. And now that the war's over, like, okay, please go back to being separate. Well, women weren't ready, didn't want to do that. So in 1919, finally we saw some headway and the federal suffrage amendment was introduced. And then finally in August of 1920, the 19th Amendment um, was finally added to the Constitution and passed. So women now have the right to vote in 1920. All right, now there's another group um, that I'm going to kind of move over to and there's no real similarity between those two So I don't even have a segue. We're just going to be talking about another group and This is a terrible group and that is the Ku Klux Klan All right now some of you may have heard the Ku Klux Klan before but this was kind of the second coming or the revival of the Klan because the Klan had largely been eliminated by President Grant and in 1915, a former Methodist circuit preacher from Atlanta um, named Colonel William J. Simmons revitalized the organization. And in 1922, remember the 20s, um, they had around 100,000 members. By 1924, it is estimated around 4 million. And just to give you an idea, the United States total population at this time was 114 million. So that means around 3.5% of the entire population in the United States was part of the Ku Klux Klan. And this new Klan had a new focus. They vowed to defend their own white Protestant culture against any group. And remember, we got a lot of immigrants coming into the United States at this time. We have nativists that are, you know, kind of feeling like they want to keep America the way it should be or the way they view it should be and so forth. And so early 1920s, many crimes against African Americans, Catholics, Jews, immigrants, and others were committed by the Ku Klux Klan. And remember, this was in a very short time that they grew, but they also fell apart in a very short time because just one year later from when I gave you that number, 1925, the head of the Klan in Indiana was sentenced to life imprisonment uh, for assaulting a girl who later poisoned herself and died, and that was David Curtis Stephenson who abducted and tortured Madge Oberholzer. And he, the things he did were just absolutely terrible. And the nation heard about this and was absolutely shocked. And they attribute a lot of this stuff to the Klan, which he was a big part of. And so in 1927, the Klan had largely diminished from where it was in 1924. So just to give you an idea that we see the Klan pop up and go away very quickly in this 1920s. All right. And... Um, Moving on, we're getting kind of close to the end here, but I want to talk about immigration and some of the things that that will lead to. Now, we've been we've been addressing immigration, but I want to go over a little bit more here as far as some acts and so forth. Now, going back to 1921, at Harding's request, remember our President Harding here, Congress passed a law restricting immigration. Now, this was only supposed to be temporary, and it instituted this thing called a quota or a numerical limit imposed on immigrants representing certain ethnic groups or nations. So 
Alright, we're only going to accept 1,000 immigrants from this country and only 500 immigrants from that country. Later on, in 1924, we have the National Origins Act. And this reduced the amount of immigrants that were, were allowed in by that previous quota. So remember, this is where we're getting more isolationists. We're not accepting people from the rest of the world. We're closing ourselves off. Um, this National Origins Act also added more restrictions on the Japanese. This will come into play a little bit later on when we get to World War II. China had already kind of been shut down with the Chinese Exclusion Act. So we're not allowing people into our country from outside. This created internal movement or internal migration, and this time period became known as the Great Migration, which was the movement of approximately 7 million African Americans out of the southern United States to the north and Midwest and even the west, and this was basically from 1916 to 1930. African Americans migrated to escape racism, seek employment opportunities, industrialized cities, um, and to just, you know, get better education for their children. And, you know, all of this was just, you know, basically to get a better life. And African Americans, you know, like I said, to get rid of racism, um, there was segregation still going on in the late 19th century. Um, there was the Jim Crow laws, which were legal racial segregation in the South. And these were originally legalized by Plessy versus Ferguson. And later on, when we get to, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, we start to see these starting to go away. But, um, you know, people didn't want to be around that racism. I mean, still today, people don't want to be around racism. Um, also, there was a, an animal that caused people to want to move, and that was the boll weevil. Uh, infestation of southern cotton fields in the late 1910s, which forced many sharecroppers and laborers to search for alternate employment opportunities. So these people who, they can't work down there because their farms that they work on or own or whatever aren't doing very well. There's racism going on, so it's like, okay, there's two reasons to want to leave. All right, on top of that, there was a lot of job opportunities. So I can't work down south, but now there are job opportunities because remember those war industries had created a lot of job openings for African Americans. And it wasn't so much in the factories, but a lot of other service jobs that had been vacated because people started to work in the factories. So if you were African American, it's not you might be able to work in the factories, but there was other jobs available too. So there's a huge job opening in the market and opportunity in the North and Midwest and West and so forth. Also, World War I and the Immigration Act of 1924 that we talked about effectively put a halt to the flow of European immigrants that were coming in to take a lot of these jobs. So there was a shortage of workers, so these African Americans started getting these jobs. And finally, to get one more push factor, the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927. So this, you know, this huge flood and all these people are having, you know, their homes are washed away quite literally. You know what? Let's just move at this point. And a lot of people did. So um, now as these African-Americans are moving out of the South, they're taking with them some of their African-American culture. For example, in the 1920s um, in Harlem, uh, the African-American population grew from 50,000 in 1914 to 200,000 in 1930. And this Harlem Renaissance, also known as a literary awakening, uh, was kind of the African-American cultural movement. And I've addressed this a little bit before, and I told you I'd be getting into it a little bit more. Well, here's that section. Let's talk about it more. So just to give you an idea of some of the people that became involved during this time, 
James Weldon Johnson. He emerged as a leading writer of the Harlem Group. Not only a writer, he also got involved with politics and was an executive secretary for the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the longest-running civil rights organization in America. And this civil rights organization was formed in 1909 by Moorfield Story, Mary White Ovington, and W.E.B. Du Bois. Sorry if I mispronounced some of those. And it's basically, its mission is to, quote, to ensure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of, of rights of all persons and to eliminate racial hatred and racial discrimination. And the NAACP still pops up in the news today, you know, going for this, this mission. And so, you know, that James Weldon Johnson that we talked about that was part of the NAACP, um, you know, published a lot of cultural works for, you know, you know, as part of kind of African-American culture moving into this Harlem area. He One of his most famous works uh, was The God's Trombones of 1927, a collection of sermons in rhythmic verse modeled after the style of traditional black preaching. Uh, leading poets of the Harlem Renaissance were Claude McKay and Comte Cullen. McKay, Harlem Shadows in 1922. Cullen, a collection of poems he called Color. And during this time, uh, in this cultural movement, we saw the Jazz Age come into its own. And sometimes it's also known as the Swing Era. And we saw such names during the Swing Era. Big shots as Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, Louis Armstrong, sorry, and uh, Sinclair Lewis um, Hemingway, writer of the 1920s, big time. Uh, Fitzgerald, writer of the 20s, most well known for The Great Gatsby, which is like the epitome of the 1920s, kind of moving into Great Depression time period and everything. Um, and he was the one who coined the term the Jazz Age. You know, Armstrong was a huge jazz musician, um, and then. Uh, Sinclair Lewis was a writer, um, insightful and critical views of American capitalism, materialism, uh, very interesting reigns. And, you know, building on this whole jazz age, people listened to jazz. And this was kind of the big thing in Harlem. Uh, it actually has its roots in New Orleans, though. But anyhow, in this Harlem area, we saw some, like, 500 jazz clubs. And everyone is dancing the new dance craze, the Charleston. And the Charleston was, you know, done by all, but one of the big ones they were done by was the flappers. And a flapper, the term flapper in the 1920s, referred to a new breed of young women uh, who wore short skirts, bobbed their hair, listened to the new jazz music, and flaunted their disdain for what was then considered acceptable behavior. I'm maybe just like teenagers, teenage girls, is that what we say? Sorry, stereotyping, I guess. Now... All these changes going on, um, there was some backlash to it, and uh, one of the big ones was in the north, not the south, with this racial tension. So um, this is the last thing I'm going to kind of leave off on, and it was the summer of 1919. Mob violence between white and black Americans erupted in around 25 different cities, and this became known as the Red Summer, and it was because of all the blood that had been spilled during this time. And the worst of these race riots had occurred in Chicago. And African-American population in that area had doubled since 1910. So in nine years, it had doubled. And it was um, it all kind of happened because of Lake Michigan. I know that sounds kind of weird, 
but a group of African-American kids were swimming and one of them had drifted over to the whites only side of the beach. Now, usually when we think of, you know, white section, black section, we don't usually think of the North, but yeah, there was areas of the North where this happened. And a white man who was upset by this thought that the logical thing to do was to throw rocks at the kids. And he hit a 17, and I'm saying that facetiously because what an idiot. Um, sorry, anyhow. Um, and one of the rocks hit a 17-year-old boy and he drowned. Um, so after that, several days of chaos ensued. 23 African Americans and 15 um, Caucasians had uh, lost their lives. 537 other others uh, were wounded and left hundreds homeless and lots of property damage and so forth. So we did see some, some backlash to all of this. So... Um, I'm going to kind of hold there for the 1920s. We're going to pick up on our next unit talking about prohibition. And this is still kind of 1920s, 1930s talking about here. And also we're going to talk about the stock market and the stock market crash, which is towards the end of the 1920s. So these are kind of some bigger units that we're splitting up into kind of smaller sections. So stay tuned. Prohibition is coming. Al Capone, Elliot Ness. Ooh, mafia, mob. Interesting. At least I hope you think so. All right. Talk to you soon.